Welcome to our new class here, Bad Theology. Some of you came just because it's called Bad Theology, and that's okay. As long as you don't do the bad theology, it's good to learn about it. Let me open in prayer, and I'll tell you more about this class. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. We need to know the error that is out there that tempts Christians to to sin with their beliefs. We need to know the truth so well that we can spot error. Help us to never be involved with false teaching, to support any kind of false teaching, even by telling other um, things that aren't true that might lead them into error. Help us to know your word, to love Christ enough, to think rightly about Scripture. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Bad theology, 12 Christian cults and their false teachings. There's a lot of bad teaching out there. There's a lot of bad teaching that wouldn't be considered a cult. Sometimes it's just a twisting of Scripture. Sometimes it's a misunderstanding of the Bible and passages in the Bible. Sometimes it it approaches a faction or approaches a, a group gathered together and they've headed off the wrong direction. But it wouldn't necessarily affect a person's salvation. It's not necessarily one of the core doctrinal truths. Sometimes people even start denominations that have bad theology. But what I'm talking about here, and what Frank and I are going to be covering this summer in this course, is the kind of theology that's often called a cult, because it is so heretical. It splits off, gathers its own followers, and the people believe in such doctrines that would lead them to hell. It's the the second Peter kind of heretical doctrine that leads a person to not be saved. It leads a person to not have Christ at all, obviously. It leads them straight to hell, straight to be burned forever and ever. So there are errors that don't lead to hell that people can have with the Bible. And then there are errors that will go straight to hell with the people who believe them. So that's what we're looking at. The 12 Christian cults, we picked 12 that are probably the most likely you're going to come in contact with. There are some, you know, we had a kind of debate, like I think it was Unification Church. Not a big deal around here. It's more in the New England area. And so we traded that out. But uh, really, if, if you're familiar with this little bumper sticker, this is kind of what we're talking about. Although some of these I covered like Buddhism and Islam back in our last apologetics class. So this is You might think of it as apologetics part two. I went over in the fall last year, what is apologetics? How do we do it? And then some of the other religions like Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, etc. Now I want to cover the ones that say they're Christian, but they're not. They say they're believing in God, the God of the Bible. They even use the Bible. Most of these do in some way, but they're actually not Christian. They're not biblical. But this bumper sticker or t-shirt or whatever is the idea that all these belief systems out there are equal. All these belief systems are the same, and we just need to get along, not fight about it, not argue about it. Everybody has their own belief. Sometimes even people who walk away from Christ will say, I have my own way. I have my own path. I believe what I believe. You believe what you believe. We just have a difference of opinion. Well, no, there is an absolute truth. If God exists and He's absolute and He speaks, which He does, and He's true, which He is, then there is an absolute truth. And these things can't coexist on the same level as far as being truth. Now, we know they can coexist in a country or a nation. We have religious freedom, which is great. 
but they cannot coexist in the sense of we're all going to the same destination. I like what this person put on the back of their car here. They have coexist, but the, the cross there, probably could make that bigger, the cross extends as a, as a sword to cut through the others. And then the Bible verse from John fourteen six: I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what, that's what Christ said. That's what the Bible says. No one can come to Christ, which means obviously have eternal life, except through Christ, except through Him. No one can come to Him without having faith in Him. No one can come to the Father without having faith in Christ. No one can receive the Holy Spirit without having faith in Christ. There is no other way. And the world's always inventing all kinds of new religions. So once Christianity came along and got popular, many people thought, and this came about mostly in the 1800s, they thought, you know what? I'm tired of this old religion. I'm tired of these churches. All they talk about is doctrine. All they do is open the Bible. That's kind of boring. I'm going to spice it up a little bit. I'm going to reject all the theology that came before this in church history and come up with something brand new. And that's where you get all of these cults. Here's a nice little t-shirt you can make. Contradict. They can't all be true. They can't all be true. So that's probably a better symbol, right? They can't all be true because they con- contradict one another. If, if Islam, for example, says Jesus is not the Savior and the Bible says Jesus is the Savior, they can't both be true. They contradict one another. One is true and one is false. And it's going to be the same with these Christian cults that we're looking at. So what are they? Here's the 12 we're covering this summer. Not necessarily in this order. I'll cover these first six and then Frank the second six. Jehovah's Witnesses, that is today. Seventh-day Adventists, a lot of people say that's not a cult. They're just another type of Christian that worships on Saturday. No, they're a cult, and we'll go over that in the history of, of their, not even a denomination really, it's, it's a cult. Scientology was very famous for a long time with all these movie stars. Now it's not as popular. Unitarian Universalists, that always has some attraction. There's a churches all around this area. In fact, on Scenic Loop, there's a Unitarian Universalist church, they call it. But there's a big one in San Antonio as well. Hebrew Roots, sacred name. This is growing in popularity. You probably have some friends or know some people that believe this. It is a cult because they're trying to put the Christian back under the Mosaic law, down to the food laws and dress laws and all of that. Christian science. It's neither Christian nor science, but we're going to cover that. And then Frank is covering his, his specialty, Catholicism. He's already done a, was that a four-week, six-week class on it? Four weeks on it. He's going to sum it up in one class. Prosperity gospel, that's always growing. Mormonism, more, this is a, a seedbed for Mormonism. They have like three or four what they call wards here in Bernie. And that's not to count the, follow, the surrounding counties. UPC, that's United Pentecostalism. Just call it modalism because that's the heresy that they believe. United Pentecostalism, famous T.D. Jakes, and there was a famous Christian group that, that believes this too. I forgot what they're called now. I started with a C. Anybody remember them? United Pentecostal. They're all three women became pastors in United Pentecostal Church. They were a famous Christian group in the 90s. Anybody saved in the 90s? Late 2000s? Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Yeah, they didn't all start with C. I'm just thinking of Craig. Yeah, Phillips, Craig, and Dean. They were, one of them became a modalistic pastor in Austin. And they, they kind of scratch their doctrinal statement and redo it over the years so it didn't look so bad. But Another one is Satanism, which is a cult branching off from Christianity. And then Freemasonry. 
This is what we replaced the Unification Church with. Freemasonry is a big deal. If you come from a small town, it's not so big in the city, but in small towns, Freemasonry is, is a big thing. It is a cult. They have cult handshakes and dress and swords and books. And, you know, anytime you go to these parades around here, you see like the most worshipful eminence father. It's, it's really strange. Anybody see that? Shriners is kind of similar to Freemasonry. The most worshipful father and potentate. That's scary. Okay, moving on now to today's topic. Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses. Technically, they are the Watch, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Has anybody ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness before? Yeah? They come to your house, don't they? Come knocking on your door. Now they're setting up in public spaces. Um, ran into to some going into Walmart here in Bernie a few years ago. They have these little setups there, and they'll hand out information. And you almost now they really hide it. You almost don't know the Jehovah's Witnesses until you get into it and look at their material. Anybody have a family member that's been in Jehovah's Witnesses? Okay, yeah. Let's talk about them. Here's the the technical name for their building for their gathering is the Kingdom Hall. The Kingdom Hall. I did not have a lot of experience with Jehovah's Witnesses growing up in a very small town. We didn't have we had some Mormons, but we did not have Jehovah's Witnesses. And when we moved to the big city of Dallas, we were moving out a little further into the suburbs, and we drove by, for the first time in my life, a kingdom hall. And I thought, what is that? So I had to look it up. And I was just saved a few years before that. And it turns out, you know, if you walk into their building, they have chairs like us, don't they? It almost kind of looks, they got a, some kind of pulpit lectern at the front. They've even got one of those high and mighty chairs that a lot of Baptists have up in the stage there. there there's... There's a similarity in the sense that you gather together in a group and they do some kind of teaching there. But that's pretty much where the similarities stop. Not popular in this area, is it? Yeah, it's all over. I mean, there's, there's one in Bernie you can see at the top there. And then look at the San Antonio area. Every one of those is a kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. It's all over. This is a cult that is all over. None of these cults we're talking about are just, you know, oh, that's in the north or that's, a, that's in Europe. All the false teaching of the world and other religions is right here. And, and probably in this neighborhood, there, there's many people who believe the things we're going to talk about today or, or even the rest of this summer in this class. Very likely you're going to run into somebody on the street or going to run into somebody as you go door-to-door evangelizing or as you meet people that believes one of these false teachings, including the Jehovah's Witnesses. Let's look at the history, because this is important. Pretty much every one of these, you can already tell from the history, it's not doctrinally sound. The Watchtower Society came out of the Bible student movement, and that was founded in the 1800s by a guy named Charles Taze Russell. Charles Taze Russell. He was raised a Presbyterian, and as a teenager, he said, I don't like the doctrine of hell. Now, that's where a lot of false religion starts. People don't like the doctrine of hell. And by this point, all kinds of factions had broken off from Christianity in the 1800s. You had the Mormons already in existence at this time, the Millerites, the Seventh-day Adventists, and others. And here's Charles Taze Russell saying, I don't like the doctrine of hell. So what does he do as a teenager, as a young person? He goes out and researches all the other belief systems out there, and he says, I don't like them either. 
I'm going to create my own. I'm going to create my own. And he met some Seventh-day Adventists who had done that. Seventh-day Adventists had created their own little group. And he said, you know, I like that. And I like how they're predicting the end time dates. I'm going to create my own belief system. And I'm going to start predicting dates when Christ is coming. Because nothing works people up by saying Christ is coming next week. And I've got the such and such date and time. People a few years ago sold their homes. They bought billboards. They bought RVs. Y'all remember this a few years ago? Was it, was it Camping? What was that guy's name? Harold Camping. Yeah, yeah. He was a Presbyterian Reform guy. And he said, the end of the world's coming soon. And not only that, but I've got the date picked. And then he missed the date and he picked another date. And then he died. After, at the age of 24 years old, he began a home Bible study. Let's just start a home church. And the people said, hey, you're our pastor. That's not what the Bible says to do. The Bible says that elders train up and appoint elders. The Bible says that churches send out church planters. But these Bible study movement of the 1800s was about moving away from the church and starting your own group. And they elected him as pastor at 24 years old with no training. So he gained a following because of his eschatology. And his eschatology was basically, I'm going to tell you the date Christ is coming back. And you need to prepare for it and listen to me because I'm a prophet. He basically said he was a prophet of God. At the age of 27, he began publishing a magazine. And this is where the, the name comes in. It was called Zion's Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Kingdom. So he was going to bring about in his, in his writing... Help for Christians to get ready for the coming of Christ. And he said, we're like a watchtower. We're out there watching for this to come, come about. So in 1881, he starts the Track Society. And this is how you did it back then. You published little booklets and you passed them around. And you invited people over to study these little booklets. And he's very prolific. He authors numerous books, articles, and tracks. So the printing press is in full swing, obviously, by then. Americans love to pick up these little books, whether it was fiction books in the 1800s or a new religious study Bible or study tract. And he's publishing these. And just to go back a little bit in the history of the church, the restoration movement of the 1800s is where we get a lot of these cults coming out, like the Mormons, I said, the Seventh-day Adventists, and the Russellites, or what will become Jehovah's Witnesses. There are other groups, too, that came about at this time. The Church of Christ, for example, what's called the Church of Christ denomination, comes about at this time. And here's what all of these groups have in common. They pretty much reject all church history and historical theology previous to this time. They say this thing, well, the church has gone off. The church has gone so far off track. I'm now the appointed person to restore it. I'm now the person who's going to fix this problem. And so they said, we reject the church fathers. We reject all good theology. We reject the Reformation and all their teachings. And we're starting over from square one. We're going to go back and pick up the primitive teachings. What the apostles taught. Which really, in their mind, gave them license to create whatever they wanted. They didn't have to deal with Augustine and his theology, or Calvin and his theology, or Luther, or the Puritans. Just burn it all, and we'll write all new books. He even had this court 
lawsuit. He, he got taken into court because he was selling miracle wheat. Charles Taze Russell in 1911, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle reported that Russell was accused of gaining profit from a strain of wheat named Miracle Wheat. And here, here's a little drawing they had in the advertisement. Newspaper article there beside, on the side there, on the right side. So what happened was his wife took him to court because he was, didn't have a good marriage. A lot of these false teachers don't have great marriages, of course. And his wife took him to court. And all of these lawsuits started happening. And these things come out where he lied and he extorted people. And he was just in it for the money, which we know the Bible tells us false teachers are in it for the money, the fame, the fortune. They're in it for those things. Now, this was his big set. Originally, he started writing this set. And he called it Millennial Dawn. But then later, it just became Studies in Scripture. And so he wrote these different volumes. I think they're in seven volumes. I wouldn't waste your money on them unless you're just going to become a full-time apologist to Jehovah's Witnesses. But they're still out there. They're in electronic format. He published these in 1886. So in the beginning, it's just called Millennial Dawn. Eventually, the name gets changed to Studies in Scripture. And that's obviously more appealing to the average Christian. They want to study Scripture. And think about a day and age when people didn't do a lot of studying of Scripture. The churches maybe weren't teaching as in-depth as they should on the Bible. That's the case today. But you didn't have study Bibles. You didn't have commentaries as much as you do today. And here comes this book that you can order by mail and have shipped right to your door. And studies in the Scripture. Look at what he said in this. He says, If the six volumes of Scripture studies, that's his set, are practically the Bible, topically arranged, with Bible-proof texts given, we might not improperly name the volumes the Bible in an arranged form. So that's just his roundabout way of saying, what I'm writing is equal to the Bible. That is to say, they are not merely comments on the Bible, but they are practically the Bible itself. It's nice he can just come out and say it at the end of the paragraph there. He says it's just the Bible itself, because I've just taken the Bible and I've rearranged it in my own order, and I put in all these proof texts, you guys need to take it as the Bible itself. Of course, he has a following, and they all say, Amen, wonderful, let's study, let's study. He goes on to say in the books, Furthermore, not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself, so you, you, can't, you can't figure it out by yourself. You need his set of books to help you. But we see also that if anyone lays the Scripture studies aside, even after he has used them, if you, if you put these books aside after you've used them, after you've become familiar with them, after he has read them for 10 years. So let's say you had these books, you read them for 10 years. If you then put them aside and ignore them and just go to the Bible alone, though, you, though he has understood his Bible for 10 years, our experience shows within two years he goes into darkness. So if you read these things and they made you so wise, and then you decided you were done with that and you were going to pick up now just the Bible, you're just going to drift into darkness, he said. You have to have his word, his prophecies, his teaching to understand what God really is trying to teach us in the Bible. You need a secret key. You need Jehovah's, I mean, Mormons, the guy had the seer stone when he translated it. He had to have this little magical stone to understand the Bible and translate it from the, well, we won't get into that Egyptian stuff. That's next week, probably. Here's what uh, Russell said. He says, on the other hand, if he had merely read the scriptures, the scripture studies, with the reference and had not read a page of the Bible, 
As such, he would be in the light at the end of two years because he would have the light of the scriptures. So you don't need the Bible. You just need his Millennial Dawn series, his scripture studies, and you will be enlightened. And in and, and the light means that you know God's will, you know God's commands, you know the doctrines. He's saying, just take my writing, and this is what a lot of cults do. You take the word of the cult leader over the scriptures. So this was a bestseller. Millions of copies, millions of copies sold in the 1800s. There's a painting of him, maybe, you know, I think it's a painting. And then there's, his tomb has this pyramid behind it in a cemetery. I believe it's in New York where the organization was founded. And it just looks strange. Anytime you see a pyramid like that, it almost, just a big sign that says cult leader, right? Cult leader. That's probably not even the Bible on the side of that pyramid. It's probably his books. Well, it doesn't end there. It's not even called Jehovah's Witnesses by that point. He's going to die and it has to pass through a few more men before it develops to what we know today. What do they believe? We're going to come back to this, but they believe that there's going to be 144,000 people that get to go straight to heaven. And the rest go into this soul sleep. So we'll come back to that in a moment. I'll talk more about it. He also taught that Jesus received his divinity after his resurrection. And that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but a force or a manifestation. Why, why do I make such a big deal about the Holy Spirit as a person when I was preaching through the beginning of Romans 8? Because there's people out there who think the Spirit is just a force, a power in the world. He taught that Christ would return in 1874, and it didn't happen. And he says, well, it did happen, but it was invisible. The Millerites did the same thing. And he saw World War I as the outbreak of Armageddon. Now, the next man comes along. Somebody's got to take over. Russell dies, and everybody thinks they're the next leader. And it sort of splits. But the main leader to arise is Judge Rutherford. Only called a judge because he served for a few years as a judge of a, of a town. He joined Russell's movement as the legal counsel. He comes on as a lawyer. He becomes the second president of the organization after Russell dies. And at this time, most people were just calling them Russellites. Unless you were in the group, you were just referred to as a Russellite. You were a follower of Charles Taze Russell. If you're in the group, though, you call yourself part of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Now, Judge Rutherford was a pacifist. He's actually arrested. So he picks up what, what Russell said about not being part of the government, not being part of wars. And he's arrested for sedition. There's actually pictures online of him getting arrested, or a mugshot of him being arrested. Uh, he was very much against the war. He protested it with others because of his religious beliefs. Now, he's the one who gave the name Jehovah's Witnesses to the organization. He said, we're going to go out and we're going to witness to other people about the true name of God, who he said was Jehovah. And he, he said this was in the Bible. This was Isaiah 43.10. So Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh. Now that's the LSB. He has it translated Jehovah. And my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. So he says, we are to be Jehovah's witnesses. We'll talk more about Jehovah in a moment. 
where that comes from. And he also gave the name Kingdom Halls to their meeting places. He's the one who gives it a name and starts to publicize this teaching. Before that, it's a little thing. People around New York City are coming to these studies. It's not a huge growing movement yet, but it is gaining ground. And he takes it to the next level. He also says, all holidays are outlawed according to Scripture. And any patriotism is against the Bible. And the way he got people to, to join the movement is he had these big meeting hall speeches that he would invite people to. And you recall, you might recall if you've read on Charles Spurgeon, how many people were flocking to hear Spurgeon. Yes, he was a great preacher, preacher but those were the days when you didn't have TV, you didn't have radio, you didn't have the internet. You barely had any good books to read. And if a big speaker was coming to town or there was a big event in the city and it was advertised, you went. And you would line up and you would get in there as quick as you could. And people always want to hear something new. Even in Paul's day, they wanted to hear something new. In Athens, they wanted to hear something new. So Rutherford's out there. He's speaking. He's publishing books. He says, furthermore, not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself, but we see also that if anyone lays the, my speeches do not contain my message, but do contain the expression of Jehovah's purpose, which he commands must now be told to the people. I don't know if I made a, a mistake in the middle and cut the sentence, or that's his mistake. But you can see the idea there in these books that he's now putting out, that his speeches, he says, are the word of God. They are Jehovah's purpose. And he's commanding people to be told this. He's commanding Rutherford to tell people this and to follow his teaching. Don't just say the Bible by itself is enough. You need the prophets. This is one of the dangers of listening to people when they say they're prophets. No matter if they're Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Charismatics. When people say, I have a word of God for you, you should already start to be very careful. Very careful. Here's some books he published. Judge Rutherford uncovers fifth column. So, you know, books like this, controversial books, conspiracy theory kind of stuff, it's still popular today, and it gets people hooked. The Finished Mystery, Helping Hand for Bible Students. Very, very soft there. It's just, just for Bible students. Just pick up this little Bible study book. And you're going through the bookstore, like I do sometimes at Half Price Books, and you, you find this title, and it looks really good. And then you pull it out and open it, and it's a cult book. But in the beginning, it just looks like a Bible study companion book. So he speaks for God, he says. And he has these speeches. His most popular one, based on the ads that I've seen, were millions now living will never die. So that was the most popular speech he had a lot of people come. Here he's meeting in the New York Hippodrome. And he's saying, come, come listen. Millions now living will never die. Because he's predicted when Jesus is coming back. And he's saying, if you want to be ready for that and, and be part of his movement that will get saved, come listen to that. Another ad up here, Royal Albert Hall. He's giving a free lecture. It's free. You can come for free. Millions now living will never die. The Honorable Judge Rutherford. And then here's one, The Hope for Distressed Humanity. 3 p.m. on Sunday, May 4th at the Auditorium, 5th and Olive Streets. So you come, you listen to this guy, 
They, they, they were very good at speaking, winsome speakers. And you hear about a quick and easy way to get to heaven. You just have to follow what they teach. You just have to follow the teachings of Charles Taze Russell. And there's a prophet now who can help you with that. Well, he died, and now you have a new president, the third president. I think this one lived the longest and, and reigned, if you want to use that phrase, over the society the longest. He joined at 18. He was a businessman. And when he became the president, he now, if, if the previous one, Rutherford, made it very public with his ads and his speeches, Nathan Knorr took it to the business level. And he said, what we need to do is publish as many tracts as possible and publish our own Bible translation. And he focused now on overseas growth and training Jehovah's Witnesses for doorstep evangelists. Before him, you probably weren't going to get a Jehovah's Witness coming to your door. He says, you know, just like encyclopedia salespeople, anybody remember those days? Vacuum salesmen? Very popular. There was no internet. You either saw an ad in a newspaper or a magazine and ordered something by mail, or someone came to your door. If there wasn't a store in town to buy it, someone came to your door and sold you a set of encyclopedias or great books or whatever. And he says, that's the model we need to use as we publish these things like crazy. You just publish, publish, publish. Now we're going to publish it as well by giving it to people at their doorstep. And so he started putting their younger people and the, the, the people in the movement who wanted to go out and go door to door. Now it's required you have to do that as part of Jehovah's Witness. But he began to train them on what to say when Christians, guess who their main target is? Weak Christians, Christians, Christians with quotes around it, who grew up in the church, who've turned away, who haven't read their Bibles in years, who say they're Christians and they love God and they're going to heaven, but they don't go to church. They don't know their Bible. Prime targets. You're already ready, predisposed to this kind of thing. And here comes an evangelist or two. It's always two, right? To your door. And they've got all the answers. And if you try to argue with them, these people have been trained. They, have, they are better at studying their system than most Christians are today. Today, the average American Christian says, you know, that's, that's just theology. That's for the pastor. That's for those stuffy churches like Grace Bible Church. That's for somebody else. I don't need that stuff. But these guys, they study their beliefs. They get trained. They go through a lot of equipping to defend their faith. And this is the man who really started that system. He also commissioned the New Bible Translation. The New World Translation, it's called. came out in 1961. It had been worked on for some years previous to that. Each of the other translations, they say, this is in their introduction to their, their translation. The other translations out there have fallen victim to the power of human traditionalism in a varying degree. So what they're saying is not just that we're going to make a little bit better translation. No, all other translations are no good. We're going to make our own. And they said we're going to do it from the biblical languages. That's what all translators say. We're going to do it from the biblical languages. But only four of the five translators even knew the biblical languages. And that one man who knew it said he knew the original language, but turns out he never even finished college. He never took any Koine Greek classes. And later, 
in court because back in those days, a lot of these people had to go to court for their beliefs and their publishing. They asked him, can you translate this Hebrew phrase? And he could not translate a basic Hebrew sentence from the Old Testament. So to translate the Bible, you need to know Koine Greek. That's the New Testament. You need to know Hebrew for the Old Testament. And there are parts of Daniel and Ezra that are in Aramaic, which is similar to Hebrew, but different enough that you have to study it separately. So the three biblical languages, Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew. These guys did not know any of those. And so what they were doing is just pulling from other English translations and then making the changes where they thought it should be made, especially in the New Testament, because that's the only language this one guy even came close to knowing. Let's talk about their end times dates. And the, just the 1900s, 1914, they said Jesus was coming back. 1925, 1975, 1986, 1989. This brings to mind, just think of Deuteronomy. We've talked about this before. What makes a, a true prophet of God? Well, there's three tests. One of them is that his prophecies are accurate. Deuteronomy 18.20, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Now you may say in your heart, How will we know the word which Yahweh has not spoken? How do you know? How do you know if this is a true prophet of God? Right here, When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. He's a false prophet. So this, this even helps us when we think about the charismatic movement, which is always growing. Let's just set aside for a moment, and I think there's a real strong biblical case that prophecy is no longer around today. The kind of prophecy that was in the Bible is no longer around today. I'll cover that in systematic theology. About two years from now, we'll get to that part. So take my systematic theology two-year class. We will get to that. I think the, the foundation of the church, it says in Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the church is it's founded on what? The apostles and the prophets. Not the Old Testament prophets. That's the New Testament prophets. The foundation is laid once. You don't build another foundation, right? Carl, when you build a house, there's one foundation. Then you build the walls and not everything else. Well, the foundation's been laid by the apostles and the prophets. We don't expect more apostles. We don't expect more prophets. Anyway, that's the biblical reasoning. But if we just think of... This verse, if someone says something is going to happen and they claim to be a prophet and it doesn't happen, what should we do? Stone. In the Old Testament. Yes, if we lived in the days of Israel, that was, they had to be stoned. Nowadays, we just don't listen to them. We reject that. You don't even have to try to make a case, which I think is there, that there's no prophecy today from God. Look, if it doesn't come true, if you have 100 prophecies and one doesn't come true, you're not a prophet of God. And what you're going to find is there is no prophets since the time of the apostles that are 100% correct on anything. Even the, one of the Kansas City prophets a few years ago said he was about 60% right in his prophecies. He admitted that. And he said, that's fine. That's, that's, he said, that's pretty good compared to everybody else. <laughs> You know, sometimes we, we have family members and friends that are in charismatic movement, but, and sometimes they can be saved and just be mistaken. But when you start listening to false prophets, when you start listening to modern-day prophecy, it can end up in places like the Jehovah's Witnesses ended up. So let's go now into what they believe, because that's really what we want to talk about. How do, you, how do you speak with a Jehovah's Witness? Bad theology is what they have. What is their bad theology? 
We've already talked about dating, dating the, the time of Christ's return. By the way, he said no one knows the hour. He didn't even know it while he was here in his ministry on the earth. You can't pick a date. Don't ever do that. Don't read the newspaper for signs of the times. Just read your Bible. Read your Bible. Study it the right way. Also, they deny the biblical trinity. This is a huge one. This is one where they often will try after they've kind of got you to listen to them. They're going to try to take you to this one. They say the Father alone is God. Just the Father. The Son and Holy Spirit are not God. There's something else. I already told you they believe the Spirit is a force. We'll talk in a minute about what they believe about Christ. Well, here's what they believe about Christ. He's actually Michael the archangel. Because they say, look, the Bible says he's the first created being of God. And so what this means is the first created being must be the highest angel. That's Michael. And Michael the archangel gives up his spirit and lets Jesus become him or him become Jesus, however you want to say it. And then when Jesus dies, because there's no existence after death unless you go straight to heaven. I don't know where they think Jesus went, but he became non-existent. He's no longer in existence. And they don't like the cross in the beginning, they did. But over time, they said, you know what? The symbol of the cross, that's tradition. That's bad. So Jesus died on a stake. And if they do have depictions in their booklets, it's Jesus on a sort of a pike or a stake, which isn't even historically accurate, nor does it match what the Bible says. They don't really care about that. They say Jehovah is God's only name. So that only the Father is God, and His real name is Jehovah. And if you use any other name, that's satanic. You shouldn't even use Lord, they say. You shouldn't use Yahweh. That's really bad. That's what, that's what often we talk about because of that's what it is in Hebrew. Jehovah is God's only name. Anybody read the King James Bible? Okay, Jehovah is in the King James Bible. So that's where they get the name. And then they try to make a case for that being the only name. And we even have a song we sing. What is it called? Guide me, O great Jehovah, or thou great Jehovah. Some of us might have grown up hearing about Jehovah in church. Let's talk about Jehovah. It's not an accurate translation. We can sing it because it is a translation, but it's not accurate translation. But so many hymns were written from the King James Bible period that we still sing some of them. We're going to do some Hebrew. This is normally Frank's domain, the Hebrew scholar that he is. On the left, that's the Hebrew for Yahweh. Yahweh. Or if you want to say it in modern Hebrew, Yahweh. Yahweh. It's four consonants. Original Hebrew only has consonants. You you just have to know the vowel sounds in your mind growing up. Later, they add some vowels at the bottom to help. But it's four consonants. Y-H-W-H. And we now add the vowel sounds back in. And you see that in the LSB. It's Yahweh. Yahweh. Now it's translated the Lord in all other English translations today. ESV, Yahweh gets translated as Lord, all caps. All caps is supposed to help you see that it's Yahweh versus Adonai, which is Lord. Okay, so that's what's in the Old Testament 6,000 and something times. If you're reading the Hebrew Old Testament, the word Yahweh is there. But the Jews, because they developed a tradition, said that's not right to speak God's personal covenant name. It's holy. The name. What do they say? Lashem? The name. The sacred name. And they said, we can't pronounce that. Even though it's there and they have to read in the, in the synagogue out loud these passages, 
even though it's there 6,000 times, we're not going to say Yahweh. We're going to say Adonai. So Adonai is on the right. That's the Hebrew for Adonai with the vowel pointings on the bottom. So Adonai on the right, Yahweh on the left. The problem is, as a Jew, you can't change it in the Bible. That would be changing Scripture if you marked out Yahweh and put Adonai. That's really bad. Any observant Jew is not going to do that. So what you say is Adonai, but you see Yahweh in the text. And eventually those two are now merging together over time. And you take Yahweh the consonants with Adonai vowels, and then that sounds like Yehovah. So where do we get the J? Well, in German, when you, when you translate the Yah sound, the Yod, it's a J. It's a J sound. So Jehovah. Because you take Yahweh, you pronounce the Yah as a J, and you put the vowels from Adonai, Jehovah. A combination of the consonants and vowels by later scribes to remind the readers of this tension between what was written and what was spoken. So you can't change the, the letters Yahweh, but you can put these little vowel markings under it. And that reminds the reader to say Adonai. And then these wonderful, brilliant German scholars say, hey, looks like Jehovah to me. That comes over in English. And for a long time, that's what people thought God's name was. Now we know better. Now we know it's, it's Yahweh. But that tradition stuck around. Jehovah's Witnesses, based on that Isaiah passage and others, say, look, Jehovah is his only name. And if you use any other name, that's satanic. All those Christians out there calling God different names. There's a lot of names for God in the Bible, by the way. Different names that he gives us to call them. They say that's satanic. And you have to name their God, which they call Jehovah, as the only true God. So think of it more like a Muslim who says you have to name God Allah, and that's it. It's, it's more like that. It's not just that they're mistaken on the translation like the King, King James translators were. It's literally that they've created a God in their own mind and found a word in their old King James that they can now apply to that, and they say you have to worship Jehovah. Other false doctrines. They deny the deity of Christ. Obviously, if you think Christ is Michael the archangel, you're denying the deity of Christ. But they say that Jesus became a human and only human. He was not deity at all. He's, he's only a sense of a God and that he lived this life and becomes a God. Little g, that's big in their theology. They'll go to John 1.1 1, 1 and say that Jesus is a God, not the God. Let's look at John 1.1 1, 1 because it is so popular. Don't be afraid of John 1.1, 1, 1, but just realize if you spend all your time talking to Jehovah's Witness on John 1 1, you're just going gonna to be going in circles with them. You can do that. That's up to you. I think there's other verses that even their translation forgot to twist. But John 1 1, I mean, if, if I'm going to pick a verse on the deity of Christ, this is an easy one, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being. That has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overtake it. That's talking about Jesus Christ. That's clear if you read the rest of John. But even though you don't have to do that. You can see in the beginning. This is talking about Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. Christ. The Messiah. The word was with God. 
And the word was, and they put in the word a, a God. And they say, well, our one biblical scholar, they wouldn't say that, but there are biblical scholars who translated their translation, said that in Greek, there's no a there. So that's, I mean, there's no the there. Sorry, there's no the. So they can put in an a. Well, that's the danger of learning just a little bit of Greek. Because you're very dangerous and heretical when you learn just a little bit of Greek or a little bit of Hebrew. Because then you start making all these wild speculations. Yeah, there, there's no article there, but there's not an article there either in front of the, the word. You see, in the beginning was word and word was with God. So we translate the article when we know the context tells us and the, and the verse tells us and the order of the words in the sentence tells us that it's talking about a specific thing. We put the word the. A, that's indefinite. That's not talking about a definite person or thing. But the word the is. So in English, when we translate it, we say not the word was, or in the beginning was word. We say in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. So we could put the word was the God. That wouldn't be necessarily bad theology. But you just leave it like it is and capitalize it as a G capital G, and the God, the God of Scripture, the God that John's going to talk about the rest of the Gospel of John. And they say, well, we are proven right, because if you look at the Hebrew here, there, uh, the Greek here, there's no A. There is no A in Greek anyway. The letter, the, the indefinite article's not there. There's not an A. There's only a definite article or not one. So don't let that trip you up. But if you are talking one, I think that's a good passage. Just realize they have been trained so well, they think, in that argument. They'll go all day and talk, even try to talk about Greek with you. They deny hell. Obviously, that was their founder's big issue with Orthodox Christianity. There's no eternal torment in hell for unbelievers. They deny a lot of things about the fall. They say the fall, when Adam sinned, he really just suffered a physical death. Not a spiritual death. Not an eternal condemnation that rested over him until God removed that. There's no spiritual death, in other words. And then the 144,000, they love that from Revelation 7, 4. They say, these are the faithful Jehovah's Witnesses who will go straight to heaven. So there's lots of Jehovah's Witnesses. There's millions in the world today. But there's only 144,000 that when they die, they get to go straight to heaven. What about everybody else? What about the other Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, they go into the soul sleep, soul sleep. The rest of the faithful Jehovah's Witnesses, these are the ones who go out and go door to door and they're called publishers. They're they're publishing their version of the gospel. These are going to be resurrected and they're going to live forever, but they have to go through soul sleep. They don't get to go to heaven now and wait for their new bodies. They just sort of disappear and get remade at the resurrection. So the body and soul, they say, can't be separated. They don't believe your body can be in the ground and your soul somewhere else. You just go out of existence when you die. And then because the soul's in the mind of God, he can recreate you if you're one of these faithful followers, but not 144,000. What about those who don't get to follow Jehovah's Witnesses? Maybe they don't hear of Christ. Maybe they don't know about Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, they're going to be raised at the resurrection too, and they're going to get a second chance to believe in the teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And if they believe and obey, you have to obey. You can't just hear it. You have to believe and obey their teachings. 
then those people will get a final inheritance of eternal life on earth. Okay, what if they say no at the second chance? Well, they say since there's no hell, God just wipes them out. He annihilates them. Those who do not believe and obey, because both of those are important to them, they will not inherit eternal life and will be annihilated. Yes? Yeah, they don't care about Jesus' teachings. They probably have. If you looked into it, I'm sure they have some twisted, he's just scaring people, or I don't know specifically what they say, but how do they explain anything in the Bible, right? I mean, what, what false teachers do is they just focus on the things that they want to talk about, and they just ignore the rest. And you see that even in, in Christianity today, right? You just talk about what you want. Expository preaching is dangerous because it makes the pastor stick to the text. When you get to jump around and do what you want, you can change things. By the way, though, annihilationism is getting more and more popular today. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe it, and the Seventh-day Adventists believe it. But now you're, you're, we've even seen here where people come in and want to join, and they believe in no hell, no eternal hell, and they believe you'll be, you'll be zapped, you'll be gone, you'll be annihilated. And we tell them, look, this is basic to the Christian faith. Jesus talked about hell. He talked about eternal life. And parallel to that is eternal condemnation, eternal hell. And so you can't deny one without denying the other. And we say, look, you've you got to go back and study this. You can't join until you get your doctrine of hell right. And annihilationism is, is popular because the modern man doesn't like the idea of hell. Not so much that people would be punished. Folks want people to be punished to do wrong. They just don't like the idea that God's the one doing it. And that's what happened with the founder here. He did not like that idea. And, and modern people who maybe aren't Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists that are annihilationists or conditional immortality, they call it today. It's more scholarly sounding, conditional immortality. They would say that God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't punish people forever. It's more loving for him to make them disappear, zap them out of existence. Of course, there's all kinds of problems biblically with that because God created eternal souls Eternal means eternal. The souls are going to exist in one place or the other, heaven or hell. So these Jehovah's Witnesses, they've upgraded their websites. Definitely saying, it's just like the Mormons. They, they put a lot of effort now into the internet. I didn't mention, I think it was the third president. He bought all these publishing houses in the 1900s. And they just started cranking out stuff. And today, they'll come to your house still. They will also set up downtown Bernie, I think right outside of Black Rifle. They had this. I've seen it at this exact stand. I've seen it at Walmart a few years ago. I walked in and, and I'm going in and I'm thinking, wow, what church is out here trying to help people study the Bible? Oh, JW.org. It, it fools you. Where does it say Jehovah's Witnesses? Do you see that? Can you see that from here? Because it's not on there. It's, it's maybe in the fine print right above the little tracks they're handing out. It's just a way to, to study the Bible here, a way to come and, and what does the Bible really teach? Let's sit down and study it together. Today, there's about 8 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the world, the real ones, the, the ones called publishers. But once a year, they have their big annual, it's on our Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, but they call it the memorial. It's the memorial of Jesus' death. And they gather once a year in a big auditorium. I think it's in New York. And they call that the memorial, and about 20 million people show up there. Now, some show up just to see what's going on and, and write against them. And there will be people even go to the kingdom halls just to 
try to figure out what they teach so they can then write books and speak against them. They'll, they'll let visitors come in, but once they figure out you're not there to be one of them, they'll start to really ignore you, I've heard. So they have this big memorial, 20 million come to that in America every year. So what are we going to do? Can you see that? It's a little small, but these are some Bible verses I think you should bring up. They want to sit down and study the Bible. Okay, let's study the Bible. But just realize they're probably, when people are fooled by false teaching, they're probably just not going to listen. God hasn't opened their heart. He hasn't lifted the veil. That doesn't excuse you from trying, but realize if they reject you and, and walk off, hey, you're just sowing seed. It's not your job to make people believe. It's your job to sow seed. That is your job as an evangelist. So John 1.1, 1, 1, but be aware they twisted it. We talked about that. John 1.18 says that Jesus is equal to God. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, they'll have ways of twisting that too, but it's an important verse, I think, to, to bring up. I really like John 20.28. 20, one of my seminary professors pointed this out to me because in their translation... It reads almost just like ours. And this is a, a, challenging, a challenging verse for them. This is when Thomas, he wants to, to see Jesus resurrected, and he finally does. And John 20, 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. So Thomas says that to Jesus, and that's in their new world translation. Now they have ways to get around it because they've been trained on all these, but I think that's a good one to say, why does Thomas call him my Lord and my God. It's my Lord and my God, not just my Lord. He's calling Jesus God. Jesus doesn't correct him. Obviously, Jesus doesn't correct him. But it's important to bring up. Now, I've heard that they give certain answers on that. But Romans 9, 5. Jesus Christ is God over all. There's so many passages in the New Testament where Jesus is called God. Titus 2, 13. Jesus Christ is not only Savior, but also the great God. So write these down, take a picture. If you get anything from this class, know Jehovah's Witnesses are false, they're a cult, and here's some good Bible verses to speak to them about. They will come to your house. Now they're sending stuff in the mail. They'll just invite you through the mail to come join them. Hebrews 1, 8, 9, the Son of God is equated with God who sits on the throne of heaven. The writer of Hebrews would be writing error if this wasn't true. Who could write such things about Jesus if they weren't true? And that's something they have to deal with. Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. Therefore, though I have... Well, that's Philemon. Turn the page. But of the Son... So this is clearly talking about Jesus Christ. The Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Of the Son, the Old Testament says, He is God on a throne, the scepter of uprightness and the scepter of your kingdom. And then, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So he is God, and God has anointed him. That's speaking of the Trinity there. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus Christ is both Savior and God. Again, very clear. And then Revelation 1.8 and 21.6. First, it says that God, well, just take both of these together. God is mentioned in one and Jesus in the other. And they're both called the same description, the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The everything. God. So these, these are true. And these are in our Bibles. Use them. That's what apologetics is. It is not trying to say, well, there's all this evidence and this. No, get your Bible out and use it. They want to study the Bible? Let's do a Bible study. 
Now I've heard, I've never seen this. I did try to watch one time when they left at our house in California. They came and they wanted to do a Bible study. And, and we went through some stuff on the porch and then they kind of left. I heard they shake off their feet to shake off the dust of their sandals when they leave. Anybody ever seen that? Okay, you saw it? Yeah? Did they have sandals on? Yeah. They, yeah. So if you reject it, not, not just be nice, but if you actually say, no, I don't want to hear the, your false teaching or I don't believe that, don't come back or whatever, they will shake off their feet and mark you down as one of those homes not to visit. They'll still send you stuff in the mail and try to get to you another way. And, I, and after so many years, I think they forget or something and come back by. But yeah, this is something they love to come and do a Bible study about the true Bible, they say, the truth in the scripture. A couple of resources here. We have this first one. I'm working on getting a second one in our bookstore. The first one is, it's just 10 most important things you can say to Jehovah's Witness by Ron Rhodes. This is not Ray Rhodes who, who wrote the one on Susie Spurgeon. It's a different pastor named Ron Rhodes. And he has these little books, just 10, 10 things you need to, to talk about when you're talking with someone of a different faith. So the 10 most important things you can say. It's a little short book. And then the other one I'll be looking at more, bringing up more as a resource, The Kingdom of the Cults. The Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. It's kind of like the theology book on the cults. It's been around for a while. What is that, 50 years, 60 years? There, there is one main issue I don't like about it, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. He thinks the Seventh-day Adventists are not a cult. And basically what I've heard is he had some friends, he talked to them, they didn't sound you know, as bad as some of these other cults he's writing against. And so he, he, he has a little appendix, I think, on them. But not, they're not in this cult section. I disagree, and I'm going to prove that case to you. Seventh-day Adventists are a cult, and their beliefs are just as bad as Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. All right, any questions afterwards, catch me. I'll be up here. Pick up some of these resources. Be ready to talk to them when they come to your door. How many times do you get somebody that needs to hear the gospel knocking on your door? That actually wants to study the Bible. So sow some seed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to evangelize and talk to others about the true faith, the true Christ. We know there's no other way of salvation. And we pray for these people lost in this system, this cult. They follow a man who has proven to be a false prophet. And they follow writings that go against your word. Help us to be discerning, to know when these things come up and, and when, when we should speak against them and what we should say. We pray that you would make us bold for Christ. In his name, amen.